Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you've just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Screencraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, Screencraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. Screencraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of Screencraft, Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out Screencraft today. Visit screencraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. My name's Al Horner, and for practically as long as I've loved cinema, I've loved the work of my guest today. Eric Roth is the Academy Award-winning writer behind films like Forrest Gump, he wrote The Insider for Michael Mann, Munich for Steven Spielberg, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button for David Fincher, 2018's A Star is Born for Bradley Cooper, and two years ago I had the delight of his company on this very show as we broke down his script for Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Do go back and check out that episode if you haven't heard it. Today I'm joined by Eric once again to discuss what might just be his crowning accomplishment. Few films this year have left the extraordinary imprint of Killers of the Flower Moon, a tale of love, murder, and quite literally poisonous greed in 1920s America, directed by Martin Scorsese. Eric's script for the film, which he co-wrote with the beloved auteur, was adapted from a non-fiction book by the author David Gran, but with a fairly different approach to the story told in that tome. The book investigated a series of killings of members of the indigenous Osage nation by white men who coveted their oil-rich land. At the heart of all this was a woman named Molly Kyle, played in the film by Lily Gladstone, who marries a First World War veteran named Ernest Burkhart, portrayed by Leo DiCaprio. Molly was forced to watch in horror as at least 24 of her family members and friends were systematically killed as a result of the scheming of Ernest's corrupt uncle, a man named William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro. Molly was not only unaware that Hale was masterminding these deaths, she was also unaware that the man she loved was helping him. 
That's the true life tale upon which Gran wrote his book, Killers of the Flower Moon, or to give it its full title, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI. It had that subtitle for good reason. The book delved into the law enforcement response to the killings as much as the Osage Nation victims themselves. As you'll discover in this episode, Eric's first draft of the movie adaptation initially followed suit before he and Scorsese realised they had a responsibility to navigate this tale from a different perspective. It wasn't as simple as making Molly the lead, that story, as non-Indigenous filmmakers Scorsese has implied, wasn't theirs to tell. Instead, the pair set about making a film about complicity and culpability that would centre Ernest as the protagonist in all his ugly cowardice. In the spoiler conversation that you're about to hear, we break down the rationale behind that choice, we talk about the film's key scenes, uncovering some fascinating details along the way about Eric's first draft. I of course ask about the meaning of the movie's astounding finale, a moment unlike anything in Scorsese's filmography, and the degree to which Eric believed that Ernest really did love Molly, despite it all. Can a man who's poisoning his wife truly care and adore that person? Killers of the Flower Moon suggests that it's more complex than you might think. Eric, as ever, was a total pleasure to chat with. He's a storyteller so inspiringly in love with what he does that at 78 years old, there's absolutely no sign of him slowing down. Writing screenplays is simply what he does. A huge thanks to Eric, and as ever, a big thank you to our Patreon community for helping make this episode possible. If you like what we do on Script Apart and want to help the show continue to grow, patreon.com forward slash scriptapart is where you can get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, the chance to put your questions to upcoming guests and all sorts of other perks. That address again, in case you're interested, it's patreon.com forward slash scriptapart. Okay, with that all out of the way, let's hand things off to our fantastic guest, this is the wonderful Eric Roth discussing the first draft secrets of Killers of the Flower Moon. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Eric, such a privilege to have you back on the show. The last time we spoke in summer 2021, you were talking about how special you were expecting Killers of the Flower Moon to be, and boy, you weren't kidding. Um, you mentioned in that conversation what a winding road it had been towards production for that project. Yeah, yeah. Having lived with this story since 2017, Eric, and having worked so tirelessly with, with Martin Scorsese to make sure you were telling this tale the right way, how have the last few weeks been for you, seeing this film finally reach audiences, seeing it win the admiration it has, and, and witnessing some of the conversations that it sparked? Well, I think it's been great. It, um, I guess it's everything I hoped it would be, and particularly because I think it um, it represented so well, and he uh, created it so well, Marty's vision. I mean, uh, I'm a big believer in, as a writer, not not only providing sort of the the boats that they can sail off on, but uh, um, being a companion in that way, and whatever changes are needed, I'm there for them, and whatever they feel they need. I mean, it's a director's medium. So at the end of the day, as much as and, and as important as writing is, and, you know, it starts with the word and everything, um, it's eventually going to be the the director's movie. And uh, and Marty, of course, is uh, a master. So uh, 
this was a great um I love it for I love it for the subject matter that it's an important movie that uh you know for the first time I think really tells the you know kind of culpability we have in the uh, you know the destruction of these indigenous people um and also um is on a big scale you know all the wonderful things that it is and uh I think it's the last a movie that'll last and um and I think that I was uh, um I feel proud to be, you know, proud to have been part of this, you know, that I, I loan whatever my gifts are. You mentioned the subject matter there, Eric. When when you were last with us on Script Apart, we talked about Dune, another film in which, you know, you're dealing with imperialism. You're dealing with a story about a white skinned culture moving in on the land of an indigenous population, taking what isn't theirs. Killers of the Flower Moon, of course, has significantly fewer sandworms, but I, I think the same description kind of applies. I don't know whether that's a coincidence, whether it's just how your your schedule is shaken out, or whether colonialism is a topic that you've been purposefully wanting to explore. But, but can you talk me through what it's been like to have your head in that subject matter for back-to-back films now? Like, uh, have you learned anything about this type of brutal, violent imperialism and and why it occurs from the last few years working on these two projects? Well, I, I, I knew I knew quite a bit about more British imperialism. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of a big student of uh, uh, English history. Um, I love it, you know, and it's like, so I'm, I was quite aware, obviously, uh, the colonialism of uh, England. Um, uh, I, I mean, the things that are interesting in, in American education is that nobody talks about, that people talk in global ideas about what we did to the Native Americans, obviously. And when you get into science specifics, people are very, really ignorant about what, what happened. Um, and uh dovetailing with that was uh while i was doing research for this uh i i realized that tulsa massacre had occurred the same year this began 1921 i believe um and i knew nothing about the tulsa massacre it just showed my ignorance and also my my schooling and i think i had pretty good education also i read like crazy and i don't remember much about it if anything was just sort of maybe some you know something and so it went to show that's why we included in the movie um i felt marty and by both felt this be something since it's the same era uh that we needed to include it and, and part of that is to show what we don't know i mean tom hanks is a wonderful kind of advocate to say our education just isn't enough about our own history you know and some of the terrible things obviously in our history so you first started writing this film I believe in 2017. Is that right? Is that is that true? I don't, I don't know anymore. So <laughs> it seems like a lot. I, I thought maybe it was 2016 and I finished in 20, but maybe you're, you're probably right. Yeah. So you're saying it's been six plus years. So probably right. Probably right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 2017 really was such a tumultuous year for America as the reverberations of the 2016 election began to be felt that was kind of all going on around you as you began to write this tale. I know you obviously had the source material to adapt, but I am curious about the extent to which, when you sit down to write a screenplay in a way about white supremacists manipulating their way into power, whether it's possible to ignore the parallels with modern day. Did, did any of what was going on politically at the time 
lead onto the page in any way, do you think, Eric? I, I don't, I, I mean, I could lie and say yes, but I, I, I don't think, it, I don't think, I mean, I don't know what your subconscious is doing, you know. Um, there are other things I think I've written that were more to the point. Um, this was just to, to trace, uh, 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 well, I guess you could say if you want to be, do a more kind of um, uh, schematic of things that, you know, some of the attitudes people were taking doing Black Lives Matter and that kind of stuff that were not uh, dissimilar to the, the way we treated um, uh, the indigenous people. Um, but I, I, I don't, I think I, I'm a big, I love history. I love it to be accurate. So I think I just honed in on whatever came in, creeped, crept in from my own political field. There's nothing, or Marty's, um, uh, nothing that would, I, I guess, I guess the only thing I'd say is as a, as an overall gestalt, uh, Marty in particular, and it was a, a great thematic of, uh, all of our culpability in this. And that's why you have kind of when uh, we, we try as best we can in, to do without headlines. In other words, we didn't want big speeches, but uh, people looking out the window and just seeing a normal you know group of people walking down the street and saying, giving the feeling that we're all culpable. And then the, the wonderful scene with the fire, I think that represents, you know, sort of the uh, almost a religious quality of it, you know, that. Um, uh, this is what we've done, you know, but uh, I can't say anything specific comes to mind uh, about um, the politics of uh, the, the, you know, Trump's election and everything else. You know? The film has been described, though, as the story of America's original sin, you know, kind of addressing the bloody foundations on which the country was built. Like, uh, is there anything that you think a story like this illuminates about where we're at today? Are there, are there any correlations you think we can draw between this tale and where the culture has ended up? I think, I think obviously, the, you know, the culture trying to catch up with what we've done, um, you know, where we, where we were, as I say, culpable. Um, what, what can we do to right a lot of wrongs? Um, I, I think sometimes it goes a little too far in um you know the the whole woke conversation but none of that was what what became relevant in this particular instance was to get the history right no question about it but to also uh, we were kind of uh, and it happened i'm not so sure originally by design but it became evident that we could not probably tell the story the book told that the point of view of the book, which was, if you don't mind me getting into that. No, okay. please do. The story of the book was uh, about uh, Tom White, basically, the um, uh, and Molly, and Molly. She was the center of it, the Native American woman, but um, uh, a, a real kind of hero who um, was a Texas Ranger and then became uh, in the first class of the FBI. And he came in to... Uh, try to get justice in some way for what was going on, the murders that were going on there. And um, Leonardo was going to originally play him. So the first scripts, the first scripts were Leonardo as um, this young FBI, uh, Texas Ranger FBI agent, and um, uh, very much a Western, 
from the get get go to the. I mean, we we really we, Marty and I really leaned, leaned into John Ford uh, to make uh, what Marty would conceive of as a John Ford Western for himself. He had never made a Western, um, and as things progressed, um, uh, we did a long reading of the script, um, like three or four hours actually, and. Uh, um, it started to gnaw at all of us, but in particularly, I think, Leonardo, that he felt that, number one, he didn't feel he could play the hero. Uh, he he wondered whether he could be Gary Cooper in that sense. And obviously, I think he can play anything. But And he also, and we also, uh, um, and credit to uh, Leonardo and Marty, as much as obviously, um, felt that we were getting into an area that we we're going to have like a great white savior, you know, come in save the day for the, the Native Americans, like the cavalry riding in in a weird way, you know, and um, none of us wanted that. Um, so that meant we had to reconsider what, how we were approaching the whole movie. And I and then I started from, not scratch, but I started again and made uh, Le, uh, Leonardo decide he wanted to play the husband character, which he plays, and um, very, very complicated character. Um, uh, we couldn't, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't find in our our knowledge of literature, movies, art, um, where somebody is in love with somebody, and we believe that he was in love with his wife, um, and trying to kill him, you know, and so that's a, a very fine line you have to walk. And and I think Leonardo did it spectacularly, uh, where he was tender and you could feel the love, and then on the other hand, he was diabolic in what he's trying to do to her, you know, and, and her family. So in any case, we began again, you know, and uh, many drafts later, we came to at least the structure of things and the way we felt it would work best. And then uh, the pandemic hit and Marty kept working on it. I did my work and uh, it eventually became, I think, even more interior. People decided, we, let's look at this from an interior, uh, inside, it's outside rather than outside to inside. And so you um, you had this sort of interior scene relationship uh, expand of a kind uh, with uh, uh, Bob De Niro's character uh, Hale and, uh, and and Leonardo's character the, the the nephew, and so that's what the movie ultimately became, you know. And uh, it was certainly it's certainly different, but the same. Um, it's different, but the same. The same sentiment you know i mean before it was uh you know i think we i don't know i think this is, was ended up being the right direction for this that i think says the right things in the right way um and so it was uh it was a long process but it, it's it's not an unusual i mean i've seen some articles about oh rewritten blah 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 um i i, I could say that on so many of the movies i've been on you know where Either I've still been around or other people have come in because, you know, the ideas are just not. And it's about the director getting what he wants. And on this particular script, I mean, I don't know if it was the first day, but early day I walked in with, to see Marty to work with him in New York and said, let's let's do this together. Let's let's share credit and let's e equally do as much writing as we can do. And he said, that's you know wonderful. Let's do that. And and we ended up doing it. I mean, he's not I'm not he's not exactly a hands to the typewriter guy, but um, he uh, he certainly can articulate how he wants things to be seen and heard and viewed. And, um, and uh, 
and and articulated and he i think he did uh, he made the movie he wanted to make and that that's my in in a lot of in a lot of ways that's my role is to, to provide him with the best ideas the best imagination um and then for him to make a movie that hopefully we both see the same way and sometimes it hasn't worked that way i mean i've written things for directors we haven't seen it eye to eye on um but you still try to find i've had i've been very lucky i've made like 30 movies and uh i've had a close relationship with almost all the directors you know um but in the end of the day it's going to be the director's movie what he sees it how he sees it so that this was i mean people have talked about you know the rewriting but it was not it wasn't unusual the same thing on munich did the same thing on um the insider i mean you know some a little more complicated where some you know a director might have been unhappy where i was going they decided to bring someone else in which is very wounding but that's life you know um so but this uh this worked out to where i think we did justice to the story justice to the people and uh and that i think i think you made a great movie yeah. So it sounds like your initial draft clung a tiny bit closer to the book, Eric. Um, the book, of course, has that very telling subtitle, The Birth of the FBI. It, it is in part from the view of the investigators. From, from what I've heard, your first draft was, in keeping with the book, kind of a police procedural, like there was that emphasis on the perspective in the, of the investigators. Have, have I got that right? Is that correct? No, that, that's not true. I'll say why it is. It is true. We we agreed early on, even with the book as it was, um, that we were going to tell the audience uh, who was doing it and how they were doing it to, to, to a certain extent, so that the audience we felt this was a, a novel way of the audience was a step ahead always of the uh, investigator that uh, uh, Tom White character Jesse Plemons ends up playing. So that um, it wasn't a mystery that way, mystery to him, but that in other words, he was, so I thought it had been a fascinating way to, have, if we had done it that way. But as I said, we also had embraced this whole Western idea about um, um, some of the things that were in the book about uh, him picking his, his brother, his brother had been killed in a shootout um, when he was a Texas Ranger and he picked his brother up at a train station in a coffin, put him in a boxcar and they, he sat with him in the boxcar, but I mean that kind of look of things, and that didn't sh that changed the specifics. But Marty kept the, the the same look of the piece, so it felt like a western of a kind, you know. Um, but um, yeah, that was that was uh, yeah, and there and there had there was a whole section with the FBI, and you meet J. Edgar Hoover, and um, and he puts together his team. Yeah, so in that sense, it was procedural. Yes, yeah, you're right. Um, but it was a little more, um, I don't want to say flat-footed because I think that, I thought that worked as it was, but it, it, I think this version is 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 far more important um, for telling the story of what needs to be told, which is about the Osage and uh, this Molly character that um, was at the center of it. And um, that in the long run, I think this will stand the test of time because of the approach that Marty took. And it became a love story in that process, like a very complicated and ambiguous one. But but that is the beating heart of this movie, this couple, Molly and Ernest. And this question that the movie kind of leaves unanswered of what exactly was the love that existed between them? 
Well, I think I think uh, I, I think they both loved each other. From what I everything I've read and everything we conceived of uh, is that this was a love story of a, you know a strange kind. And only three movies we could think, or piece of art we could think of was uh, Othello, Desdemona, um, um, uh, probably talented Mr. Ripley, uh, maybe Place in the Sun, and there was one more, but. Those all had somebody who was in love and was trying to kill him. The, the other side of the equation, I, I really can't answer because I don't, to this moment, and maybe I'm ignorant, and I've asked so many people, and somebody who's smarter than me will tell you, I don't know why the the, the indigenous women were uh, wanting to marry white men. Um, I, maybe because they had, in most cases, they had way more money and things. I mean, so I don't, unless you fall in love, um, but beyond that, maybe it was some because they were downtrodden. There was some feeling of success to that. I don't know. I said I can only give you lay psychological reasons. I just didn't know. So I've been asked that question. Well, why is she with him, and and why doesn't she wonder what's going on? And I think I think two things are true. That one, she was in love with him and did not want to see what was going on. You know, she was blinded by love and the cliche. And the other was, as I say, the psychological idea of why these women wanted to be with these men. Um, and, and, it's, and it makes the movie more interesting. Uh, that would have been there whether Tom White was the hero or not. You know what I'm saying? That was a complication. But it certainly becomes a more of a, in that sense, a kitchen drum between these two people, you know. Well, that is one of the many, like, kind of great complexities of the movie. Like, you, you set Molly up as a character who is very smart very independent and has agency and she she immediately clocks Ernest as this coyote as she calls him so th there is like an interesting dimension to the film in which you are wonder wondering what it is about Ernest that has made her kind of go along with his seduction I suppose well I think she uh she found him in, uh and this is all based on real stuff so I'm this I didn't make this up uh, or did Marty um the woman did seem to love uh Ernest. They had three children together. Um, they lived a uh, they lived a fairly good life together. I think they seemed to have passion, from what I understand. Um, you know, I wasn't there, but uh, <laughs> um, she she's very much Lily Gladstone. Just perfect the way she portrays this particular woman, um, who seemed to be rather stoic in her approach to things. Uh, you know, that thing we talk about with the birds, uh, she doesn't like a lot of talking. Um, and she seemed devoted to him, you know, um, from what I gather, you know. Uh, so wh whether she's blinded by that, I think she thought he was handsome or whatever else she was attracted to about him. Um, so uh, that that's complicates things. It makes it even more interesting. Yeah. So Molly's very much like the moral epicenter of the movie. But it's it's not her movie in the kind of traditional screenwriting sense, you know. Ernest is probably the protagonist by virtue of of how much time we spend with him on screen. I, I suppose. I would say so. I mean, there, you know, there are certain criteria. I mean, you have Leonardo DiCaprio, so I mean, a major star. So that's important. The character is important. Um, his relationship with Bob De Niro is important. Molly is not. She's not symbolic, but she is. She does represent the. Um, you know, uh, the Osage in that way, even though we obviously, uh, and Marty particularly, lean way into the o Osage culture. Um, 
uh, gave them as much due as you possibly could, so they could articulate the things that they felt had been wrong. They were they had been wrong where they had. Um, but Molly was always the epicenter of the book too. In other words, it starts with her walking in the book, I believe, just amongst the wildflowers, you know, and you get a sense of a spirit uh, with her blanket on her, and and so she rep she represented. Um, she represented the indigenous people, yeah, in that in that sense for this particular movie. Yeah. One could say, you know, I've been some people have said, well, why didn't you do it from her point of view? I guess you could have, but that wasn't, you know, each filmmaker and artist chooses a point of view that, you know, uh, Francis Coppola could have decided to do uh, Godfather from Diane Keaton's point of view if he wanted to, you know, but these, this is the point of view we felt was the most interesting that, uh, had the most dramatic tension to it and um, also showed the, as we say, the culpability and the malfeasance and the, um, you know, the way they treated natives as second-class people and everything else. You know? I suppose it would have been quite difficult as well, like with the historical fact of the story, meaning Molly is unavoidably sidelined for a big chunk of the second act in bed, having been poisoned by Ernest and, uh, that would have obviously been a bit prohibitive from a storytelling standpoint as well, I suppose. Yeah, she um, in in the re in real life she pre she was proactive in certain areas and other areas she she was she, this was part of her personality that aside from the fact she was obviously being poisoned, so you know she was bedridden and had uh, you know was trying to stay alive. Um, but um, she's proactive. She got uh, 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 some detectives to try to help solve the thing. Um, and uh, I think she, you know, uh, she talked to the tribal elders and everything and tried to do everything they could to um, stop all these murders, which is not only, you know, we limited basically to not particular, I don't mean limited, but we focus on her family, which was what their scheme was. You know, they were going to kill all of them and then hope to get all the, you know the money but there were there were so many others i mean there, uh, there's there's numbers up to like 300 that were killed you know or 200 and something so it, it wasn't i mean it was like the, a, a gold rush coming to kill people when they discovered oil um every every uh rotten bastard in america showed up in that town which went from i want to say 2500 people which was the size of the osage maybe a little bigger and uh so all of a sudden, 15, 20,000 people, you know, and a whole percentage of uh, uh, Anglos, uh, Caucasians came rolling in, you know, um, with kind of money on their mind. Hey there, this is Al. Just jumping in to let you know that support for this episode comes from our friends at Mubi. If you happen to be in East London on, I think it was Wednesday night this week, and heard blood-curdling screams from a nearby window, quickly followed by hysterical laughter. Well, sorry about that. That was me watching Drew Goddard's excellent meta-horror, The Cabin in the Woods, just one of the countless must-watch movies available right now on movie here in the UK. 
Mubi is the only curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the world. And its mix of films by both iconic directors and emerging auteurs, Take It From Me, is second to none. If you're not already subscribed, you can sign up today for a free 30-day trial with our exclusive promo offer. Head to movie.com forward slash script apart and follow the instructions for a whole month of amazing cinema without paying a penny. That address one more time, it's mubi.com forward slash script apart, or you can click the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And let me uh, wind back to something you said a few moments ago that I don't want to I don't want to just breeze past because it was really interesting. It, you spoke about kind of this almost being like a whodunit, except from very early on in the movie, we have this character, Robert De Niro's character, William Hale, who explicitly announces his plan for his nephew uh, who buys in. You know, we, we know as an audience exactly who's doing this. So, um, like, just to interrupt you, Marty said early on, or uh, I think it was Marty, but he said, this isn't a who done it. It's a who didn't do it, and that was after the first version, uh, you know, of with when it was uh, emphasizing the Tom White character. So he always felt that way. So uh, yeah, it, this was again that notion of culpability because we're all kind of culpable. Um, uh, I mean, at the end of one of the early versions before uh, Leonardo changed parts, and they still have the line in another context slightly, but. At the end of the day, somebody says to the Tom White character, well, at least you got justice, right? And he said, what justice? He said, they're more liable to convict somebody for kicking their dog than to kick for, for killing an, uh, a native. So, um, yeah, there is no justice that way. No justice. Well, it's so interesting. Like the question that rings through the movie, can you find the wolves in this picture? Yeah. As a result of that scene early on with William Hale, we absolutely can as an audience. They're in plain view to us, but they they conceal themselves. Hale conceals himself uh, in a really cunning way from the community. And um, yeah, I, I guess one impact of getting rid of the question of who's perpetrating these murders is as an audience, you then have three and a half hours to ponder a different question, which is, why? What is it about greed and whatever else that motivates hell that's so poisonous? And it, it's about you know it's it is about this kind of incipient avarice and oh in this case not even incipient, but um, and I think it has it, it's a metaphor for what you know they're taking the land from people that kind of thing. So uh, it's um, yeah I mean that's that's what I say once again I keep emphasizing this word culpability and. These two, uh, and, and it's all true. So it's not like we've created characters just to make some point that this is what he did. And, and it, what people are slightly forgetting is some of the ethos in 1920s are different than they are today. So that he, for instance, Hale felt he was best friends with all sorts of Osage people. And he probably was, you know, on the same token, he was killing, you know, their families and things. And, and, uh, the, uh, Ernest character, um, even uh, uh, oh, Hale, when he was in prison, um, I have all these letters where he was writing letters to all these, in quote, friends of his that were Osage, uh, saying how much he missed them. And uh, they came, wrote back saying they missed him. And because he was called the king of the Osage uh, Hills in that way, uh, because of that. I mean, but I'm saying it's a different, different world. I mean, a different world. One, 
the wealthy, wealthy of the wealthiest uh, had great power. I'm not saying they don't now, but, you know, a rancher in that area had all that money. And um, uh, you, and he was a devious man who used his power for evil, obviously. But um, uh, also, I, as I say, the, I think the, uh, the, the look at life was quite different. They're very religious. Um, um, they were, I'm not saying trusting, but the, they accepted people were not particularly all good. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and then to say that Ernest, um, one of the reasons I've convinced he loved her was um, uh, he, when he was dying um, of cancer, he wanted his, he asked for his son to spread his ashes uh, 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 at, in the Osage Hills. And I think he somehow adopted this world, you know, and that she meant that much to him. Yeah, that, that kind of echoes what Margie Burkhart, uh, Molly's great granddaughter, has always said about the real life story, which um, she insists is not a case of victim versus villain. It was more complex than that. She truly believes that, uh, yeah, Molly and Ernest were in love. Um, Eric, we should probably touch on the length of the movie as that's been such a big discussion point. Um, you mentioned earlier how the table read for your first draft took four hours to get through. It seems that one constant throughout the evolution of this movie was a recognition between you and Scorsese that you needed a pretty long runtime to tell this story. And um, it's clear from a narrative perspective why you needed that kind of length. There is so much plot to get through. It's a dense story spanning many years. But it struck me watching the film that there's, there's kind of almost an emotional effect to that runtime too that lets you experience Molly's grief in this unflinching way. The movie's refusal to kind of rush through the slow torture that she must have experienced seeing members of her family, members of her community killed one by one. I think you come to understand how it must have felt for Molly in a way that uh, I don't think you would have had if, if you'd combined a bunch of the murders into a montage to trim the runtime, for example. Yeah, no, uh, well, Marty, Marty does those things in a particular way. They become vignettes, you know, where yeah. the violence is almost startling, but it was always there. Um, Runtime, I, I, I've written, I, I write long scripts, so I don't help that way. And um, I always say that the movie's as long or as short as the director wants to make it. Yeah. And it's not really up to me. We could, we, you know, we could debate whether there's too much of one thing and we can probably pick it apart. But this is just the length of the movie he wanted to make. He felt told the story. And uh, I would never say nay to that, you know. Um, uh, I, I I don't mind really long movies because I look at them as watching a sort of a wonderful novel or something where I just get completely embedded in it. But um, I can understand people feeling sometimes that it's uh, a little longer than they either can get out for and all those things. But this one's pretty unique. I mean, all the it's really interesting to me that I, you know this is a complete you know local survey, but. All the people I've have, uh, talked to have seen it all over the country. That everybody has one same reaction, aside from seeming to like it, but or, or appreciate it and grown with it. Um, that the audiences sit for those three and a half hours without moving. And obviously, someone gets up and take a pee or something. But beyond that, they're transfixed and uh, and sort of mesmerized by the whole thing. Um, and uh, I, I love that reaction. So that they seem to be completely imbued in it. You know? 
Yeah, yeah. It really does feel like the length of the film has been like leveraged into a tool of the storytelling. As I say, you really feel Molly's plight in a way that I don't think you would have if you were only spending two hours with her. I'm just, I was just, while you were talking, I was trying to think the lengths of some of my other movies. Um, The Good Shepherd was quite long. Um, Yeah. That might have been 240 or something. I don't know. Um, Forrest Gump was probably closer to 220 or something. Um, uh, but, but I don't know if I've had any that had this. No one, nothing I've done is over three hours. I, I've written scripts that they could have made three hours plus. <laughs> you know, and there was a debate about whether we should have an intermission and this and that. But Marty, he just felt this is this. You need to sit down and just watch this, you know. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, we, we touched on the violence of this film there. It, it, it feels like this violence is different to the violence of previous Scorsese movies. I'm wondering whether there was a directive from Marty about how to approach the killings themselves on the page, because you know the, the film feels quite pointed in its depiction of violence. It, it refuses to make it part of the entertainment of the story. So much of it is off screen. The bomb going off we experience in Ernest and Molly's bedroom rather than it being kind of yeah, gratuit- yeah. gratuitously shown. Yeah, and, and oftentimes the film will simply present us with a body rather than showing us the killing, and this yeah. this all feels really deliberate. So yeah, I, I think this. I I, I got to be honest. I left that up to Marty, in the sense I would say, I, I mean, I'm, I think I, maybe I had some details that Marty ended up not doing, you know, about shooting somebody, or he he added something like that, or showed it in a different way. You're right, oddly. I mean, interestingly about the bombing. Um, we, I had a longer kind of setup for the bombing with the more kind of tension to it that way, uh, you know, where the guy sets a bomb in the basement and this and that. And uh, it, it always, as I remember in all the drafts, was shown first with Molly and, her, uh, and Ernest in bed and being sort of blown out of bed and then going to the explosion. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Marty made a decision to... Um, make the uh, violence certainly part of the part of the um piece but that not to do it where it was so um much of the rhythm of the piece uh, in the way he's done before i think i think uh, i have to i have to think about that but he's always done these kind of wonderful vignettes and obviously different kind of music to those you know from rolling stones and stuff to where it becomes <laughs> almost humorous you know yeah um, and this this was not uh, this was uh, these were this was just sort of matter of fact, and it, I guess it was closer to the Irishman that way. Yeah, uh, if you think of the Irishman, you just have some Bob would just walk up to someone and shoot him in the back of the head and walk off. You know, he didn't make a he didn't make a dance out of it. And was that informed by sensitivity to the material, sensitivity to the community whose story you were telling here? I don't know. I don't. I can't say. I, you'd have to ask Marty that. I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think. I knew he would conceive and do it, uh, shoot it the way he wanted it to be uh, articulated. So uh, we never had any big conversation about it. I, I, I gave him ways to do it. Um, some, uh, you know, some together, some separately, how we imagined the violence to be. Um, and uh, I, I never thought, I mean, in many cases, that's just true. I, I don't think about you know, if I have some strong feeling, I'm, let's make believe I'm making this up. I want someone shot off a roof and it means something to me. Then I mean, I will say it's really important to me so we could do it this way. And he would have he would have considered it whether he ended up doing it. I don't know. But 
in this case, I don't think I, I, I knew some of them were also sort of true crime things. This wasn't made up a lot of these. Uh, this Anna Brown woman who died in the creek because she was shot on in a car from the back of the head and or whatever, you know, that she had been taken away kind of and she was drunk and uh, it, it was it, it within itself was kind of complicated and you know and uh, this they did things where like the guy he gives the guy the car so he could he'll kill the guy in payment for the car those were all real things I mean this was all stuff that we didn't make up so uh, and, and a guy like you saw a car that I think runs into a a tree and that was because they they did something to the brakes on it or something you know. So I'm saying it was all it was all historically accurate. I, I can't think of too many that were made up, you know, in that way. The segment of the movie involving Molly's uh, slow poisoning, like that, that's in a way the worst betrayal, the most violent act, despite it being a quieter type of violence being enacted. Like I, this, this just broke my heart, this entire segment. And um, yeah. It, it builds, well, actually, there are a couple of things to say. Number one, I know that, um, am, am I right in thinking that your partner is is somewhat of a diabetes specialist, Eric? Yeah, she's, uh, yeah, she's a world famous diabetes. She's really world. She has like 2,000 patients. That must have been helpful if you had any questions, just ask. Uh, oh, yeah, for that, I, yeah. But it's, it's interesting. That's a, It's a great historical fact, which I remember running into her when I read it, that Molly was one of only five people in the whole world that had insulin. Yeah, that's crazy. It had just been discovered that year in 1921, and they tested it. And it was, I think, from a cow's pancreas, if I'm right. Uh, two men in um, Banton and Bastard, I think their names were something. They were Canadians. And um, the, the only people that could only go to people who really could afford it, you know, it was really incredibly expensive. And she was one of the five, which is bizarre, you know, in its own way. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure if he knew at first he was poisoning her. And, but I think he did know finally, you know, and um, the people that are, are less, we just, we just don't know that much about what they did and what they didn't do and who they were either working for or not was the two doctors. They were kind of they were very questionable. Uh, the the Sombra, whatever their name was, brothers. Uh, so that was kind of a muddy area, and I'm not sure we sorted it out as, as, as well as maybe we could have in the movie. Be that, but I think we we wanted this feeling of that he wasn't sure he at first, and then he he realized he was, and he kept doing it. You know. Well, all of that leads to the most nightmarish and most like lyrical scene in the film i think in which like amidst this kind of great raging fire outside um ernest administers the poison and then sort of takes it as well almost like in this kind of like guilt-ridden solidarity yeah there's like a suicidal element to it yeah 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 can can you talk me through what you think's happening in that scene because uh there was just a variety of different takes on it when i was coming out the cinema just hearing people talk about that moment well i i know we had talked about that we want because uh, at one point, Ernest did sort of try to kill himself with the poison, you know. So that was probably the way Marty articulated that. It was always very tricky, as because as I say it, it, we couldn't know whether, because I don't know, I never spoke to Ernest Burkhart, whether he knew he was poisoning her or not. But I think I think he did at some point. You could also make a case where he was actually trying to see if this was poison that was in the vial, you know. Yeah, so I think it was... 
a, a historical thing that we weren't 100% sure about. So it was left up in the air slightly, even though you kind of know the result. And he tells her basically at the end, which is a wonderful thing when she's so repoisoning me, basically. You know, and since he doesn't answer, she, she knows the answer to it. The last time we spoke on this show, Eric, uh, we, we talked about the loneliness that runs in, in your movies. And I, I think the same applies to Killers of the Flower Moon. There's, um, there's a literal loneliness to Molly as she's confined to her room by illness and, and robbed of the family she holds dear. Um, and there's a spiritual loneliness to Ernest, especially like that scene where news reaches him in his prison cell that his child has died. There's this kind of absolute guttural hollowness that in him that makes clear he has nothing and he has no one and and what's lonelier than that i suppose yeah i mean i think this was just a piece of material that probably spoke to me because of uh amongst other things obviously uh the quality of the loneliness and i i feel i think i feel that way about kind of the old west and things like that there is a to me but that's me as, as you say from last time that was something that the uh once critic and now uh 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 radio host um elvis mitchell said about all my movies but i think maybe that's why i i was drawn to the material also you know so it wasn't it wasn't me creating the material but it still it still continues i uh i just wrote a movie for um denis villeneuve which uh, i won't tell you what it is it's kind of a secret of its own but uh we'll see what ends up happening with it, but it's about space and time and it's it's very lonely <laughs> so it's certainly about eternity <laughs> i'm so glad to hear you guys are collaborating again yeah we'll see if, we'll see if it works yeah no, i know i adore him he's wonderful yeah. um you mentioned a moment ago in passing that that kind of final encounter between molly and ernest in which you know she asks the question were you were you poisoning me how did you approach that scene? Like all the things that are said in that sequence are so fascinating. All the things that are left unsaid, equally fascinating. I think I think it just was the ultimate. I mean, and she's slow to the realization, obviously. And you say, well, why is she so slow? And we talked about that, but it's the ultimate betrayal. This is somebody she really, she felt here, he's going to testify, you know, he's going to tell the truth and everything else. And yet, he he uh, he was trying to kill me, you know, and so it's uh, I think it's a wonderful scene. I thought he staged it just right, and I thought he he gave you just enough of the information without getting into a whole conversation or you know a big dialogue about what you, why would you do this to me and that kind of thing. And how did that compare to to the initial draft in which I'm presuming Tom White is the the protagonist of that original version of Killers of the Flower Moon? Perhaps he must have had a a hero moment, so to speak. I don't remember. I think, I think the scene was not unlike what we have in this in the movie. I I have to really look. Um, it was choreographed quite differently. That um, uh, I think historically, and then I know one part was not historical, but um, he was uh, he found out about the death of his daughter who died. I think a whooping cough. Whooping cough. And um, it was just decimated him, which made him now want to uh, sort of find some sense of uh, reclamation for himself and, and testify and all. And um, he went to the funeral. Um, I remember that. And it was very touching. Um, 
And then then there's a thing I invented, which was not um, uh, in the book, and it, it's kind of melodramatic, but it was it was a hero moment where uh, Tom White character um, put uh, got got um, uh, Ernest in a car to drive him, we thought, especially back to jail. Instead, he takes off across the plane. And he goes for quite a while and he just stops and he gets out. He says, you can go to Mexico now, go wherever you want. And he starts walking back and you don't know what he's going to do, um, Ernest. And then he appears the next day um, in court to testify. But I'm saying this was a real movie kind of moment. I'm not <laughs> sure it worked with the, you know, what we ended up being a, a probably a more mature version in that sense, a little more sophisticated. It was a great, it was a very that that and a couple other things with Tom White were very heroic, but it really spoke to this sort of great white guy, you know, uh, <laughs> fixing everything. His name is even Tom White. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I that's that I remember, and I, there was a moment I think with Molly and him, but I think it was in the courtroom for some reason, um, where. I don't, I don't, you know, I just don't remember anymore. I have to go look as to what was then that the same kind of scene where Molly then basically just said, fuck yourself, go fuck yourself. <laughs> the final scene, Eric, is one of the most singular pieces of cinema that I've seen in a good long time. Like we've spoken throughout this conversation about this idea of culpability and um, that, that final sequence throws the culpability kind of inwards. It, it seems to be Scorsese kind of examining his own culpability through his body of work. Like I don't know a body of work, but I think, yeah, I uh, I don't honestly remember if this was my idea or his to do that. I know we both did not want to do chirons for saying, you know, uh, you know, so-and-so lived for 25 more years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we both were aware, and as I said, I don't remember, I'll give Marty credit, but 1947, there was a radio show. And so we both said, oh my God, what a great way to do the titles. Now, it, we've had some mixed opinions about it. Some people are kind of, I think it's kind of bravura, you know, uh, I think it's amazing. And then Marty doing it, I, I, I was very moved by that for some reason. It almost, I don't know why, it almost made me cry because it was him coming to, say, yeah, this is a story told by storytellers, but this is a real thing that happened to people that, you know, uh, that we, we killed so many lives. And um, uh, and that, yeah, I'm the one who's telling the story. Um, and, and, and also about how, as storytellers, we can tell any story we want, you know, and, you'll, and most people will believe it, you know, so it's iconography of things also. I found it sort of staggering in its own way, but I was very moved by Marty doing it. Some people like the radio show, don't like Marty, and you know, it's that kind of combination, but that's that to me is good if something is brave, you know. Yeah, I think it's a, a sort of astonishing piece of cinema. Sometimes you get some things that you're not expecting. And I love that. Uh, the more I can do of that, the better. And that was one of the main reasons we did it. Um, uh, it all, I, mean, I remember the end of Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks, which he, he probably gave his best performance, uh, where it was just raw and real. And they had a real EMT person who asked him questions, how are you feeling? And he broke down and 
it had the same kind of resonance, I don't know, resonance to me. You know, when you find something that is just so different and so unexpected and almost goofy with the radio sounds, you know, sound of the radio effects and on a real case that had, you know, real life consequences and there it is. And that's how it ends up, you know. It's so complex and so layered because we've been immersed as an audience in this tale and in the, the kind of, we've been entwined in the lives of these characters for three and a half hours by this point. And then suddenly we yanked out of that and we're, what, we're witnessing this kind of, this terrible tale being turned into entertainment. But then of course you become aware that as a viewer, well, how is this film any different? That's right. That's exactly right. So that's, and then you, but it also speaks to the subtlety of what we can do with film uh, literature. We can, we can tell you any point of view. And if we make it sound real enough, you, you know, you're probably going to believe it, you know, unless you do your own research and find out what the truth was. And so don't accept just on face value of what you're shown. And uh, yeah. So I think in all those respects, I mean, I'm not saying it's as, never mind, I don't want to say this, but, you know, there's always a great debate about uh, film credit, right? So on on um, on, on uh, Citizen Kane, so, you know, the Writers Guild determines credits, right? So they say, who did the, who did the work? Who justifies the credits? And so someone once said, well, let's assume the whole movie of Citizen Kane was written, but there, there was no rosebud in it. And then someone they were asked to bring in, and all that person did was write, you know, do the sled and the rosebud in the beginning and the sled and the rosebud in the end. I mean, quite a contribution, you know what I'm saying? And I'm not so I'm saying I'm not I'm not making this this radio show equivalent, but I think those are the kind of unexpected things that make movies pretty great, you know. The last time um we spoke, Eric, you mentioned at the end of our conversation how um, you were trying to, I'm going to try and think of the exact phrasing because it was really special. You mentioned how you were trying to maximize your time on the planet that you have left to tell the stories that really mattered to you. And um, that quote kind of came back to me watching this because it feels like such a vital story. And um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of like... Yeah, but I would like maybe not have had whatever the many years we decide on, seven years. But <laughs> yeah. well, part of that, he did, he did the movie, he did the movie, The um, Irishman Pandemic. So a lot of it was just uh, just time passing, you know, because of other things happening. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same way, even more so at 78, because probably last time we talked, I was 74 or something. Um, and so, yeah, every but I still, uh, you know, I'm blessed, I guess. Um, uh, I'm still vital. I still have so many things I want to say. I love writing still. And hopefully we'll um, have an, a couple at least more movies to uh, have explored some other things, you know, and hope they're good and work with great directors. And so uh, the only thing is I, I, I've been able to do more than one thing at, at once a little bit. Uh, they overlap. Um, I wrote a play of High Noon that looks like it'll probably get done, which is very exciting to me. Um, and then, um, you know, Marty and I have something that we want to seem, seemingly want to do. To, I know we want to do it together. We have to make sure it all works uh, uh, pretty special. And um, I've got two or three other projects that are going that all look very real and very exciting to me. So, yeah, nothing. Also, the scripts have gotten shorter. <laughs> so, because I, I don't, I don't, I don't have time to write 180-page scripts anymore. No one will read them anyway. <laughs> 
So I, I, I think my last script, I turned over like 104 pages, unheard of, unheard of. You know? Wow. It's, it's one of those projects you've got uh, in, in the works. Is, is that the Kennedy's project? That, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I did the pilot for a, um, uh, a version uh, we hope to have as like a version of the crown, but with the Kennedy family and particularly John. Um, wow. Yeah. So I, 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 I did one version and now I'm just dealing with notes, you know, as to how to, you know, some things people agree, some disagree, same, same as anything. And it's, it's just back to what have you done for me lately, you know? And so, <laughs> Uh, that that I think could could uh, find its way. I mean, I don't know if I'd write more than the pilot. Maybe one more episode. Um, it's I, I think it's a fabulous uh, could be a fabulous show. You know. Well, by the time you add that to Killers of the Flower Moon, which of course tells a tale of early America, to Forrest Gump, which flits through a very different chunk of American history in a very different way you know, there's going to be a pretty significant chronicle of American history traceable in your work, Eric. Well, I love history, like I said to you, so that if, um, and particularly if it's, I don't know, Forrest Gump's not very sophisticated that way, but um, <laughs> but this is a very, very, um, I, uh, the book is uh, one appeal to surprise and everything. It's a, a wonderful history of the Kennedy family from uh, 1915 to basically the 60s, I think, and um, of all, of everybody. And it's very, very uh, thoughtful and very erudite. And, um, so it's the kind of elegance that, that Peter Morgan is a genius at with the crown. I'm not pretending I'm him, but I'm trying to emulate his, uh, you know, his, as I say, his elegance and his um, uh, his look at history. And also the he writes, he's as good a writer as I know. He writes with metaphor and that's really hard to do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for all these projects, Eric. Yeah, well, I have a movie. I'm wearing a hat. Uh, this is from a movie that Bob Zemeckis and I wrote called Here, H-E-R-E. Yeah. It comes out next year. Uh, it's finished, basically, uh, with Tom Hanks and Robin uh, Wright um, and Paul Bettany. And uh, anyway, um, it's uh, it's very, very special. It's from a graphic novel. Um Cameras locked off. There's no coverage. One room over a hundred years, and anything that lived in this property, like dinosaurs and marsh birds, and uh, and then Native Americans and uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin's son supposedly lived across the street. And, um, uh, it's it's quite extraordinary, I think, and it's like nothing you've ever seen. And we'll see. So far, we've had two previews, and everybody seems to love it. But we'll see. We'll see. You know. <laughs> A little early, but yeah, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, hopefully we'll be able to have you back on to talk about that film as and when it well, comes out. Well, you definitely out. can. We'll see if it's as popular <laughs> or as well, as well received as this one. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, that would be next Christ uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas. I'll be glad to schedule it with you. Yeah, let's get it locked in. We could even, if it doesn't work, we could even talk about why it didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something something tells me that that team, you guys reuniting, I think you, you stand a pretty good chance. We think so. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. There's no guarantee. You know, as you know. Uh, well, Eric, thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you. I really always enjoy your questions. They're well thought out. And uh, uh, thank you. I hope I've uh, made people interested more in Kills the Flower Moon. And let's, let's see what happens with it, you know. You've been listening to Scripts Apart. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. A reminder that if you want to help the show continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com forward slash script apart or clicking the link in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time.